This episode is brought to you by Philly Gemstones. It was interesting that we had Prada in London last week showing their first ever fine jewellery collection, Eternal Gold, and it was all made from recycled gold. Yeah, and I think that where where luxury brands sort of lead, others will follow. The idea behind Single Mine Origin Gold is we're giving that power to the consumer. They can see that this gold has come from a mine and these are the initiatives that mine is doing. And if you endorse that and you think it's positive and impactful, you can buy that metal. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. Today we are talking about the most timeless and priceless substance that's gripped our imaginations and desires for over 3,000 years, gold. And I'm delighted to be joined by the editor-in-chief of Retail Jeweller, Ruth Faulkner. And later in the episode, we are going to hear from Dan and Charlie Betts, brothers who own Betts Metals and started Hummingbird Resources, which is a gold exploration company. And through that, they began SMO Gold, which is single mine origin gold. So not only can they trace where every single ounce of their gold sold comes from and prove that nothing negative happened in its production, they can also prove the positive impact that that gold has had. But first of all, I want to welcome Ruth and thank her for joining us. I've been prompted in particular to talk about gold today on the podcast by two things. One is the gold consumption that seems to be rising. It's always in demand as a safe store of wealth. And some analysts are predicting record high gold prices in 2023. It's a massive trend in jewellery right now. And retail jeweller who for over a century have been the old trusted source of information of news, information, analysis, business advice for the jewellery and watch sector around the globe are particularly focusing on sustainability in their upcoming issue and online, which includes gold. So I am delighted to have with me this morning Ruth Faulkner, who's a council member of the Goldsmiths Craft and Design Council and the award-winning managing editor of Retail Jeweller for nearly a decade. Ruth, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I wanted to first ask you, before we go into the sort of sustainable aspect of jewellery and gold in particular, but why do you think humans have been so fascinated by gold historically? People have always been drawn to gold um, actually because of its beauty. I mean, it's it's shiny after all. And I think there's a slight sort of magpie in all of us that's drawn to shiny things. The raw surface of gold is said to have a sort of undulating movement that looks a little bit like water. People have said that that might be a reason why humans are drawn to it. But I think not only is it a symbol of beauty, but since it has been discovered, because it's so beautiful, it's also been a symbol of power and purity. And sort of metal-wise as well, it's very useful metal. It conducts electricity. 
it doesn't tarnish and it's malleable um, so you can work with it it can be molded and shaped without breaking so it's useful to people it's one of the few commodities that's also thought of as a currency or an asset most currencies around the world used to be backed by gold until recently and although the gold standard isn't around anymore as you alluded to gold is still really popular as a safe haven investment in times of turmoil and people buy it to preserve their wealth and what you, you see kind of when things go wrong the gold price tends to go up and it's considered sort of one of the safest places to put your money. So I, th- I think all of that kind of adds to um, the human fascination with the metal. And do you think that it is the best metal for jewellery? It's certainly one of the best metals because of this historic connotation with kind of wealth and value. So people value it, but also because of its, you know, the practicalities of it, because of its malleability and it being easy to work with. To use in our jewellery, it allows people to kind of do amazing things with it. I was reading actually that you can draw an ounce of gold into wire 50 miles in length just one ounce about 38 kilometers I mean that is massive isn't it yeah to get it that sort of thin and you can beat that ounce into a sheet that would cover a hundred square feet they must have thought it was some sort of magical substance when they realized they could hammer and work and beat and cajole this metal into something to make shapes. And I think that, you know, um, you mentioned the the Etruscans and, um, you know, they worked with gold in the most incredible ways, but actually the, the gold that they had was quite scarce. So that's part of the reason that, that the pieces they produced were so intricate because, you know, they were working with quite a small amount really of gold and to see what they'd done with it from such a small amount, like you say, it's so versatile. It's just incredible, really. I suppose that was the idea of that, that they really invented filigree, didn't they? Yeah. Working with this gold wire and granulation and, and that was to make the gold go as far as it could because they couldn't find much, I guess. You know, you can see sort of examples of filigree and um, granulation going back to kind of the Egyptians but it really was the Etruscans that really perfected those techniques and they were sort of so novel because they had to have the precision on an incredibly minute scale because they didn't have like an infinite gold supply. So do you think that was the highest point of goldsmithing in human history? Um, I think we can see examples of gold being used skillfully throughout the whole of history I mean, obviously, you know, some of the things that the Etruscans were able to produce on such a minute scale, it's just absolutely incredible. But, you know, equally in medieval times, there was great examples of goldsmithing when um, goldsmiths were commissioned to sort of adorn religious manuscripts and um, create containers for holy relics and that sort of thing. And then equally during the Renaissance period, goldsmiths enjoyed sort of their own golden age of metalwork and artists sought inspiration from the Greeks and the Romans and the growing need for kind of design meant that goldsmiths were were sort of experimenting with new forms and techniques. And, you know, even up until today, it's probably impossible to pinpoint one particular period as the highest point because every era has seen the production of some amazing pieces. Today, you know, when I privileged enough to be a judge for the annual Goldsmiths Company Craftsmanship and Design Awards, I'm always blown away every year by the skill and the detail of the pieces that people have submitted and, you know, the patience that they they have to be able to create these beautiful creations. It's, it's just mind-blowing. Do you think there are enough goldsmiths in the world who, who know the craft and this, have the skill and are passing it on? Sadly, there aren't as many as, as there were. I mean, certainly as manufacturing kind of moved away from the UK, we did see 
kind of a reduction in those skills. But it is, you know, through the Goldsmiths Company and other organisations, you know, the, the importance of apprenticeships and training the next generation to learn these skills and exciting people about working with these amazing precious metals and gemstones that is really, really important. It's something I feel really passionate about because I think just letting people know that these careers are available, these are options for people, career paths, you know, creative people who might not necessarily want to be a a fashion designer but have the practical skills to to perhaps be a goldsmith and um can apply that that sort of that creative mindset to something like goldsmithing we have a duty to make sure that these techniques don't die out and to bring young people through um to learn how long does it take somebody to to become a goldsmith wow um i actually that that's <laughs> it take years yeah it? years, it takes years. Yes. i mean i know you know, an apprenticeship um, through the goldsmiths company, um, you know, when you're tied to a master, that, that takes years before you're you're sort of fully, fully qualified. And, um, you know, you do phenomenal pieces for your assessments as, as you move through. And it's a real art form. So at the moment, do you agree that there's a big trend for yellow gold? Definitely been a shift back to yellow gold. Helped in part by... Um, the surge in popularity of kind of that demi-fine layering trend, those pieces tend to be made in yellow gold. So I think that's sort of driven it. Also, I think now people are more willing to mix their metals. You know, it used to be kind of you could only wear white gold or you could only wear silver or you could only wear yellow gold. But now people are mixing and matching, wearing yellow gold and white gold at the same time, or there's pieces with both in them. I think that's helped as well. I think for uh, 2023, um, certainly what I've seen so far, the trade shows that I've been at is um, a lot of yellow gold with, with green, with green stones, with emeralds. I think that's a big trend for, for yellow gold for, for 2023, yellow gold and green stones. Like peridot. Yeah, peridot, emeralds. Fabulous. That's my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> so can you explain briefly what makes white gold white? Why is it white as opposed to yellow? It's actually the non-gold metals used in the alloy that ultimately determine what colour the gold is. So yellow gold is the alloy of pure gold um, and silver and copper or zinc. And then white gold is an alloy of pure gold and white metal, so nickel, silver, maybe palladium. And then it's often plated with rhodium to give it a whiter look. And they don't use nickel so much anymore today because many people are allergic to it. And then rose gold is the alloy of pure gold with a high proportion of copper, which is what gives it that rose content. You can get green gold as well. It's not actually green. It's made in the same way as yellow gold, but they don't put any copper in it. So it's a slightly different tone. And what was the the metal being used in the whole demi-fine trend? Predominantly yellow gold, I think, but sort of depending on where where you were buying and who you were buying from, sometimes it was gold-plated sterling silver. I think it mainly was because it seemed to me that over time it was tarnishing Yes, when I looked. And I sort of thought, I don't understand. For me, if I was buying that, I would want to know it had gold content and it wasn't going to tarnish. Yeah. And I think that's where being very upfront for you know those selling jewelry being very upfront about what's in what's in the piece of jewelry and how it's how it's made because you know I I look on websites occasionally and it will say gold and actually it's not it's gold plated sterling silver and you you realize that when you look at the product description 
but I know what I'm looking for. Not everybody does. Yes. So that's something I want to ask you about is your initiative for sustainability and traceability that you're launching this month. Could you tell us um, a bit more about this and why you're doing it? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, we know that sustainability is growing in, in importance for everyone. Um, for all consumers, not just consumers of jewellery, but, you know, everyone's more aware of kind of the choices they make, what they're buying, who and how they're choosing to shop um, and the impact that that is having on the planet. McKinsey and company predicted that by 2025, 20 to 30 percent of all fine jewellery purchases will be influenced by sustainability. That kind of means that for for those involved in in jewellery and the manufacture and um, sale of jewellery, sustainability factors it's not just like a secondary nice to have anymore they've got to be sort of at the forefront of the the business decisions that that people are making so as a, as a trade magazine for the industry we wanted to draw attention to that and we 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 write things about kind of sustainability um all the time but actually we, we've dedicated a whole issue to it for March and anchoring this issue is what we believe to be one of the UK like UK specific first ever extensive consumer surveys on the topic of sustainability. So we have surveyed 2,000 ABC1 UK consumers. And we asked these 2,000 people kind of what sustainability means to them in relation to jewellery. So can you share any of the results with us? Yes. So, I mean, what was some of the standouts is that the trust that people, uh, that consumers place in the brands and the retailers they're shopping with, 86% of those that we survey said that they trust a retailer or a brand that claims to be using recycled or sustainably sourced products, which is great that the consumers are putting that trust in the retailer. But at the same time, um, it's a lot of responsibility on retailers and on brands and those sort of producing jewellery to make sure that they're getting it right and to make sure that they're confident in their own supply chains, that they know that what they're selling is what it says. So your survey says people want to buy sustainably produced jewellery yes are they willing to pay a premium for that they are they they are willing to pay a premium as well which is good to know we asked what percentage uh, would you be prepared to pay a premium for jewellery that is responsibly sourced and 62 percent of people said yes they would and of those 62 percent we asked kind of how much that premium would be and the the biggest number 33 percent said that they'd be prepared to pay sort of five to ten percent more for a sustainably or responsibly sourced piece of jewellery versus one that isn't. And then going back to that point you made about Demi Fine, about looking at things that say gold, and you know that actually not, it's not the correct description, um, are you then relaying that around to the internet, that people really have got to be incredibly clear about what a piece of jewellery is created from? Yeah, and I think that by and large, the industry know that, that they have to be but sometimes it's a difficult thing to police especially with um you know new brands springing up that might start out on social media and with an e-commerce presence and there's absolutely nothing wrong with the, the jewelry that they're making at all but you have to be honest with people about it and let people know um which i think is where you know in the uk we're in a unique and fortunate position that we have these uh, strict hallmarking laws. And should people become more aware of hallmarks and looking for them on their jewellery? Um, I think so. I think hallmarking is incredibly important. Um, it's protection for the consumer. Um, so a hallmark, for those who don't know, in the UK is a, a stamp 
on the jewellery, the same as um, goes in the same place as a maker's mark. And it confirms the quality and purity of the jewellery. So it lets the consumer or the person who buys the jewellery know how much gold or silver or platinum is in a particular piece. And as I say, you can also have a maker's mark. Or, or the mark of a particular designer or manufacturer. And in some cases in the UK now, we have a mark showing whether the piece was created here in the UK. There's a created in the UK hallmark now as well. But the primary purpose of the hallmark and the Hallmark Act is to guarantee to consumers that they can be assured that if it says it's 18 karat gold, it is 18 karat gold. So it's meant to steer people away from kind of frakes and fraud. I mean, you see a lot now um, on descriptions on websites and in retailers a lot about recycled gold and I think that's quite important because as as we've spoken about gold's sort of virtually indestructible so nearly all of the gold ever mined is theoretically still accessible in one form or another. That's an amazing thought isn't it? Yeah. So there's just tons and tons and tons of gold and it's still here. And therefore available for recycling. So that means it's possible to brand gold that hasn't come direct from a mine as recycled in some way or another. So the majority of recycled gold, it's about 90% of it, comes from jewellery with um, gold extracted from technology providing the remainder of recycled gold. However, mine production still accounts for the largest part of global gold supply, about 75% each year. Oh, really? So the recycling is pretty small right now. It's 25%. Mm. However, the demand requires more gold than is newly mined, so the shortfall will always be made up from recycling. Is it a good idea that people go and buy locally and find local craftsmen and local jewellers wherever they are? I, I would always advocate shopping locally um, anyway and supporting independent craftsmen and independent jewellers. If you look on you know, a high street in the UK, um, your local high street, you will probably still find a local jeweller who is an independent, who's family run, who might have been there for over 100 years. And I know it's the same in the US as well. Um, Germany also has a very strong independent sector for jewellery. But unfortunately, there's obviously very limited um, gold mining in the UK um, these days. Uh, you've got um, Scottish gold mining, which which launched um, and producing um, a small amount and um, obviously some, some gold mining in Wales, but it's certainly not not a major industry here. When did the Scotland initiative start? They, I feel like I've been writing about it for a, a, a long time, but it's taken them a long time to kind of bring the mine on stream. But they have had like the first bits of, of gold from it. And there's a jeweller in Scotland, uh, Sheila Fleet. She's making pieces. They've given like exclusivity to a couple of people initially to make the uh, the gold out of the Scottish gold. Well, hopefully that could be another great industry for Scotland so we can have whiskey, oatcake, shortbread and gold. Gold mining. <laughs> so, Ruth, it was interesting that we had Prada in London last week showing their first ever fine jewellery collection, Eternal Gold, and it was all made from recycled gold. Yeah, and I think that where, where luxury brands sort of lead others will follow. So I think that this was um, a, a great move by Prada, interesting move. Um, it's a 100% certified recycled gold, all verified by blockchain technology. So kind of that real traceability um, element, people able to sort of guarantee that this is recycled gold, um, believe from electronic waste. Um, and so for, for a brand like Prada, you know, when they make their first fine jewellery collection to, to, to make it out of a metal like this. Um, yeah, I think it, it will make other people sit up and take notice. Definitely. 
So I'm delighted to be here on If Jules Could Talk with Dan and Charlie Betts from their family company, Betts Metals. Also their mining company, Hummingbird Resources. Um, Hello, Dan. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hello, Carol. Thanks for having me on your show. And Charlie, hi. How are you? I'm very well, Carol. Nice to talk to you. And we're going to have like a 360 degree look at the entire supply chain from exploration of gold to jewellery. But first of all, Dan, I want to ask you, why does gold obsess us? What is it that's sort of magical about gold that, you know, forever humans have gone to find it, looked for it, risked their lives to find it and wear it? It's a great question that has captured the imagination of people for thousands of years. I think it's because it is magical, Carol. I mean, if you've ever held a a lump of gold in your hand, it is supernatural. It shouldn't weigh as much as it should weigh. It shouldn't be as shiny as it is. It's It's got supernatural properties. And I think ever since the beginning of time, when people have touched this material, they're like, what is this? It, it's magical and it transports them into another place. And um, I think it's rare. It's very difficult to get hold of. Is it rare? You know, tell us that. How rare is it? Well, actually, I think statistically there is about 0.6 ounces of gold per human being on the planet. So most of that is obviously owned by banks and locked away in vaults that people will never see in the light of day. So I would say it's extremely rare. Yeah. I mean, scientifically, if you look at the periodic table with all the elements, the, the rare earths and, and the precious metals are by far the rarest elements in the um, in the earth's crust. So it's definitely rare. And it's I can tell you from hard experience, Carol, it's extremely hard to find and extremely hard to mine. So how do you find it? How do you locate where to actually dig? There's an awful lot of techniques, but ultimately you need to hone in on an area where you think there may be gold bearing rocks through uh, magnetic surveys, geophysical surveys, stream samples, soil samples. And then you, you basically hone in on an area and when you think you have a vague understanding that there may be a subterranean source of metal, you have to drill it. And that's when it gets expensive. You you effectively drill holes in a systematic pattern across the ore body to try to imagine and interpret the three-dimensional shape of that block of gold, that ore body, those ore-bearing rocks under the under the earth. So how far down are you going? Well, I mean, there's no answer to that question. I guess uh, some of these underground mines in South Africa have gone four and a half kilometres deep and they're still wow. following gold veins. And I've been down those mines. They're scary places to be. But at the same time, you find outcropping gold on surface. I guess rarer now. Most of that has been picked over. But it's a very, very diverse industry. And the way gold presents in nature is infinite. And no panning anymore. We're not doing alluvial panning for gold anymore. Well, well, actually, I mean, one of the techniques for finding gold is stream sediment sampling. And you take a pan into the gravel of the river and you pan it and you use just gravity, no chemicals. But that is one of the ways of finding traces of gold. And you know that it came from upstream of that point where you're taking the sample. And and gold panning still exists in in communities in the world. I mean, you know, in the Andes and in Africa, people still... Colombia, I think in Colombia they do, don't they? Uh, All all over the world, to be Mm. honest. Southeast Asia, yeah, panning is still used. Obviously, they use chemicals in that sometimes, like mercury, which is a disaster for the environment and a a very, very dangerous practice for the people panning for gold. But um, it's still commonplace. And where are you mining yourself? Because are you kind of going around the world looking at different places 
Where are you mining at the moment? So, so we're exclusively mining in West Africa. That's not to say we couldn't branch out and look at developing mines in other parts of the world, but just by quirk of um, fate, I guess, our relationships and how the business developed, we built a mine in Mali that we're producing gold from. We are just about to start producing gold from a mine in Guinea, and we have another project in Liberia. And I guess because we're there operating in the region, our best network and connections are in that region. And it, West Africa, I think, is the second largest producer of gold in the world as a region and probably the fastest growing region in terms of new discoveries because it hasn't been that explored in history. And no mercury there. You don't use mercury there. And, well, we personally, Carol, definitely <laughs> do not use mercury. So in, in Hummingbird, I mean, obviously... We're a listed company in, in, on the Stock Exchange in London. We comply to all the international standards, cyanide code, codes of conduct, best practice in, in everything we do. But there's a whole world of alluvial artisanal mining all around us and all around the world that still uses chemicals in an unregulated manner. And that's the problem, isn't it, for people going to buy gold and to look at gold, is there are so many different sources and they've got different names. It's the artisanal versus the mining. And then people think, oh, mining's not good. Maybe I'll go for artisanal and help those people. But actually, we've got to lift the artisanal mines out of what they're doing, haven't we? Well, it's, it's just such a complicated subject because there are some amazing artisanal mining communities that have been mining gold for since the dawn of time and their livelihoods depend on it and they do it in a responsible way and it's great. And then there are artisanal minefields where they're full of illegal chemicals and you don't know how they're funded and the gold's probably supplying drugs or weapons and it's just impossible to police and it's impossible to generalize as well so how the consumer gets transparency is a real issue that's all, all i'm talking about there is the artisanal side of the industry the other side of the industry is the mechanized industrialized large-scale mining industry like we are this is one of the reasons single mine origin came about is the perception is mining's bad you're just going and destroying the environment and exploiting resources. And I fundamentally disagree with that. I think that industrial scale mining can be a force for good where you can mine in a responsible way and give back to the local communities and help uh, provide education and healthcare and alternative livelihoods and really raise the standard of living in these remote places where we be impactful. That's, that's the word, be impactful. And um, you can police it. They're licensed. You can trace the gold from source to the earrings on that you wear. And um, I think it's a very powerful thing. And also you can restore the land, that end of mine plans, aren't there, to put the land back to where it was. It's not going to damage the local wildlife or the local natural life. Well, yes. Yeah, so, so when you start a mine, from the very beginning, uh, you pay a bond into an end of mine restoration fund. And when you finish mining, you restore it as best you can. But let's be clear, mining is impactful. Like you dig a massive hole in the ground mm. and you don't push all the earth back in. You rehabilitate it, you make it stable, you plant stuff on it, but you can't create a mine and not have an impact. But I guess this is where the world has become so dislocated. Everything you use or wear or eat is either mm. mined or grown. Humans have an impact on the world. They, they do. Well, I think we're living the impact, aren't we? We are suffering the impact. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think 
we haven't totally thought through the solutions. So this whole like green revolution, let's go to battery metals. There's going to be a whole mining revolution to supply those battery metals and that energy transition. The key is how you do it and doing it responsibly and engaging with the local communities and governments and giving back. And that's what we are trying to do. We're trying to do the opposite of what's happened historically, which is kind of just go about your business and not talk about it because the perception is mining is bad. We want to shine a spotlight on the impact it can have and be cognizant of the fact it's a difficult industry and the world is complicated, but try and shine light on the benefits. The idea behind single mine origin gold is we're giving that power to the consumer. They can see that this gold has come from a mine and these are the initiatives that mine is doing. And if you endorse that and you think it's positive and impactful, you can buy that metal. So how do they see that? Because you are finding that and then you hand it over to Charlie, who is then supplying it to the jewellery industry. Well, I mean, let me hand over to Charlie at this point, because he's sort of managed the supply chain and the integration into the jewellery side of the business. But ultimately, between our business, we have complete control and transparency over the entire supply chain, which I think is unique. And I mm-hmm. think it gives us this opportunity to show the market what you're buying. So, Charlie, how do you go about that once um, Dan has found the gold for you? <laughs> I, well, it's probably not not totally fair to say he just hands it over to me. He's pretty integrally involved a- across the whole project. But um, realistically, what we do is we just we, we try to keep it very simple. We we have a segregated supply chain from the mine to the finished product. So that the big difference with with SMO gold from other gold is that at the port at the refinery where most gold that comes from mines all over the world gets co-mingled into an enormous batch of gold. With single mine origin, we we keep that gold totally separate from any other material through the refinery so that we know after it comes out of the refinery as fine gold, we still know where it came from specifically. So then we keep that segregation through to, you know, manufacturing, whether at BETS or directly at at other jewellers around the world. Um, And then what we can do is we provide a QR code with the finished product, either from us to the jeweller or from the jeweller to the consumer. And that QR code links directly to the origin mine of that gold. And increasingly, we're going to share more and more data, you know, be it, you know, grams of carbon per ounce of gold produced at that mine or social spending around the mine. And we're really going to allow consumers to properly scrutinise the source of the gold. So that not only do they know where it came from, they can make their own judgment calls with proper, you know, informed quantitative data about that source of gold. So do you have enough gold to supply all the jewellers who want this gold? I mean, at the moment, absolutely. We, you know, we are sourcing single mine origin gold from Hummingbird's Yanfalila mine and from Endeavour's Itty mine in the Ivory Coast. Dan can tell me the total numbers, but I mean, total production from those two mines alone is around quarter of a million ounces a year, probably. You know, we have a couple of other mines we're looking to onboard within the next few months. So demand for SMO is is growing. And obviously, total, you know, investment and jewellery demand for gold is is enormous. But there's also a lot of, you know, really forward-looking, responsible mining businesses out there that would absolutely fit into what we're trying to achieve in terms of meeting international best practice, being very open with their that you know the data of of what they're doing so 
yeah, I, I really don't see supply being constricted at all. I think to put it in context, Carol, um, hmm. the the gold market is huge and the financial aspect of bullion is much bigger than the jewellery element of bullion. So most of the mining company's gold goes into gold bars that is bought and traded by banks as a financial implement. So there's a lot more supply than there is purely jewellery demand in the world. And I think you don't need very many of those world-class responsible mining companies to supply gold. You, you could really supply the entire world's jewellery supply. Have, have you watched the gold on BBC that's um, on iPlayer at the moment about the big Brinks mat robbery. Have you watched that? I have not watched it. I don't know if you've watched it, Charlie, but I did notice it said it was talking about some refiners in Worcestershire, which is actually where we live, <laughs> who took the Brinks gold. But I can promise you it wasn't us. It's one of those ones that's been recommended by pretty much everyone I know, and I've not yet got round to it. You, ha- you have to watch it. It's absolutely fascinating because, you know, in the process of it and them stealing these £26 million worth of gold bars, which apparently took them two hours to load into a vehicle to take away. They were so heavy. They said it it sort of changed the way, it changed so many of the systems in the UK. And I wondered if one of them was about hallmarking, because I noticed that they had, they managed to recreate these gold bars using different gold so they couldn't be traced and then re-hallmark it. But I imagine now everything has to go through goldsmiths to be hallmarked. Well, there are sort of, uh, I think, five assay offices, official assay offices in the UK, and then a few of the bigger manufacturers have assay offices in- in-house. But yeah, I mean, there's a tightly controlled assaying system across across the UK. So these guys must have found a rogue hallmarker. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess they could have recreated those stamps. Yeah, yeah, you need to watch it. I can't believe you haven't watched it already. But anyway, do you think that that is part of the attraction of gold, that it... it is always a safe investment that people think that gold is so safe, so secure, so solid. Yeah, absolutely. I think that. I mean, um, you know, I think in jewellery, it's more the physical properties of its luster and its shine and its malleability and the fact that it's so beautiful. I think that's why people want to adorn themselves with it and, and be craftsmen with it. But I think it has this dual purpose, which is it's seen as a store of wealth. It sort of shows you to be wealthy if you have gold jewellery. And it's a backup plan. If, it, if everything else fails, you can take all your jewellery and cash it in. You know, it has some intrinsic value. So, yeah, I think it covers a lot of bases for humans, I think. Now, tell me about what you think about recycling, because that's what a lot of jewellery companies are now advertising to say we use only recycled gold, part of this you know, circular economy, put it back, use things that have been discarded, put it back into into use? Well, I mean, I'll let Charlie um, follow on. But personally, I think it's fantastic. I mean, ultimately, our family business is a recycling business. It's recycled gold since 1760. That's really? what it is. Yeah. It's, so Charlie and I are actually the ninth generation in that business. And that's what it does. It takes in scrap. It takes in used metal in different materials and it recycles it and repurposes it and sends it back out into the market. So massive fan of recycling and I think it's great, but it's not, A, it wouldn't satisfy all future demand because there'd be no supply and B, it's not impactful. Like the the whole point for me about the mining question is it's not a negative, it's a positive. Like done the right way, it can be hugely positively impactful. So recycling doesn't do that but it does a lot of other good stuff and as you say it doesn't have any carbon foot well it does 
because you have to put it in a furnace and use it. But it has a much smaller carbon footprint or, you know, there are benefits that way around. As Dan said, you're, you, as a sort of 260-year-old recycler, you're not going to find us knocking recycling. I think it's massively important. And in terms of sustainability, it's obviously important. Um, but I do think a lot of global jewellery brands, are, they need to be careful with recycling because it's a very easy claim to make. You know, as you well know, gold is endlessly reused, recycled, and you can essentially take gold from a pretty questionable source, remelt it once or re-alloy it once and call it recycled. Um, so for me, recycled metal of known provenance you know where you know it's been recycled from electronic waste or silver recycled from x-ray film which is a project we do that's terrific but actually there's no regulatory framework around recycling there's no control around recycling i think brands are at risk of being accused of greenwashing unless they're careful and they really understand what kind of recycled metal they're using what the provenance of that metal is And, and again as dan says there's no impact story you you know mining is going to happen so I think it's really important that where it does happen we affect change and make sure that happens in a really positive way so to me recycling is a vital part of the picture within jewellery manufacture but it's only part of the picture I don't think it's the whole answer I think you need a much more especially as a big brand I think there needs to be a much more nuanced approach. To add to that when is it okay like if you recycle electrical precious metals is one recycling cycle good like where did that metal originally come from for example at the moment there's all these sanctions on russia so most people probably not want to buy russian gold because they think they were helping the war in ukraine or or whatever but a hundred years ago it might have been sanctioned somewhere else so it might have come from somewhere different unless you know the origin of that metal how can you be totally comfortable with the source god so you've just opened up a whole new can of worms yeah Okay, so recycling's out, basically. Sort of, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, fair mine, fair trade. Uh, are those safe sources for us? Yeah, do you know what? They are safe sources. I think they're, you know, they're both charities. They're both working within the artisanal sector and they're, they're brilliant initiatives. So what they do is they pay a premium for the gold that gets reinvested and it makes artisanal projects that they're working on, you know, safer, um, better, better controlled, you know, more investment into local communities. I think the the issues with fair trade and fair mind are, you know, not all jewellery brands can tolerate the kind of additional premium that they involve. You know, if you're working on quite a tight margin, that's a challenge. And unfortunately, the supply is just not consistent. So again, some of the big jewellery partners we work with, if they need X many kilos of gold delivered to a casting house, they need it very quickly. They need absolute consistency of supply. And, and you can't always, you know, we work a lot as bets with fair trade and fair mind, and, and we just can't always guarantee that. So again, I, I think fair trade and fair mind are a really important part of the supply chain that jewellers, if they can use, if they can happily to pay the premiums and work with slightly inconsistent supply, right. brilliant. How do you actually transport your gold? So when Dan has found it, is it prepared there and then transported ready for jeweller's use when it arrives in the US, UK, wherever it's going? So gold comes out of, you know, one of the LBMA refineries in Switzerland in the form of fine gold grain. So really from that point... Okay, so it will go from Africa to Switzerland by boat, by plane. How does it travel? By plane. By plane. First class? 
No, I don't think so. I think, <laughs> I think it's in the hold, I'm afraid, Carol. Christ, I don't want to know that. I don't want to get on that plane in case, you know, the weight of it all. So that's just a normal, normal everyday flight. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, every step of that process from the mine is obviously um, signed, sealed and delivered by different counterparties, whether it's ground transport from the mine to the airport in Mali, through customs from the you know from the airport in Mali into Switzerland to the refinery and then from the refinery to Betts Metals where it's made into final product to go to the jewellers. So where is Betts Metals? In the UK. In the UK. So it's Africa, Switzerland, UK, off to the jeweller. That's probably as little air miles as you can get. It is really. And we also would supply, you know, a, a, a lot of major manufacturers would take fine gold direct from Switzerland to wherever their manufacturing is. So it doesn't have to come, you know, into the UK. Um, Charlie, I wanted to ask quickly, go back to your silver recycling, because I think that's a really interesting project that you're doing, isn't it? Yeah, it has. To be honest, we've been, as Betts Group, we've been recovering silver from medical x-ray film and industrial x-ray film for decades and decades. Um, And it's just been sort of mixed in with all our other recycling work from the jewellery trade and from various industrial sources. And it was a bit of a penny drop moment last year when we thought, God, it really wouldn't be difficult to keep this segregated, refine it in-house and, you know, be able to provide a product where you absolutely know the provenance of it. And also something that, you know, that X-ray film, if it's not being recycled, is probably either being incinerated or put into landfill. So it's a you know, it's a it's a proper sort of sustainability gain, I think. So yeah, I, I'm I've been really pleased with it as a project. So how much silver can you get out of those X-rays? Uh, it really depends on the type of X-ray film. It can be as little as a gram of silver per kilo, and it can be as much as you know for some very dense in, industrial sort of non-destructive testing X-rays. It can be sort of twenty, thirty grams of silver per kilo. So, but you know, there's tons and tons of this stuff sitting in warehouses around the UK that that is ready to be destroyed you know it's well beyond the retention date of those records and it's just sitting there costing NHS trusts money they're paying to store it they don't need to and actually they can get a a rebate from the value of that silver so yeah it's a really nice project you feel like you're you're saving you know NHS and private hospitals money you're you're saving a sort of stuff going to landfill and you're providing a solution that more and more jewellers actually really want. Is there anything else secreted about our houses or warehouses or businesses that we could actually extract metal from? I mean, there's there's precious, you know, precious metals are used in all sorts of places in, you know, electronics and, you know, silver is, is used in lots of other particularly medical uses where, you know, like wound dressings because it has antibacterial properties. The problem with it is they're mostly tiny, tiny quantities. And as, you know, especially, manuf- you know, electronics manufacturers get smarter, they realise they really don't need to use much gold or, you know, on their on their electroplating. So the cost of recovering the gold or the silver is often prohibitive. But, you know, as techniques for recovery get better, then certain things, you know, again, become possible. So it, it is, it's a really interesting evolving marketplace. So what are the three... Simple questions people should ask when they're buying gold. If they're going in to buy a wedding ring or a pair of gold earrings, the three questions about the gold they're buying. Where did this metal come from? Uh, What did the production of this metal do that benefited the environment where it was mined? I only need two. I think that's it. I honestly think you only need one. I think if you can ask a jeweller, you know, the provenance of the metal they're using, can they give you 
a proper answer because you'll you'll know straight away if you're being bluffed you know you you want to work with jewelers who really understand and have thought about what what they're buying and what the materials they're using and they might they might want to use recycled metal they might want to use fair trade metal you know hopefully some of them will want to use single mine origin and i think as long as they've engaged with it and thought about the supply chain and the impact it's having that's that's great and do you think people should be aware of the gold price before they go shopping? I don't think fundamentally mm. that a slight shift in the gold price is going to make a difference to whether people buy or don't buy, you know, piece, pieces of jewellery because so much of the value in jewellery is in the in the craftsmanship. You know, most yes. pieces, unless apart from some really really you know bling chunky stuff, actually it's it's not that significant. You know, especially you know I think the diamonds obviously are, but the, the value mm. of the gold in a piece of jewellery isn't probably the most significant component. But I've been, you know, when I've been in Shanghai, I stood for a morning in a in a jewellery store and I was amazed. You know, Chinese were aware of the gold price. They came in with their gold, they weighed it. And they obviously were buying according to these fluctuations. Yeah, I mean, I think the gold price is extremely volatile and it moves every minute. You know, there's a totally liquid market and yet you've got to buy gold, make jewellery out of it, get it to a shop, sell it, and then somebody needs to come and buy it. And it could take months for that process to happen. And I think they're pretty dislocated, really. I think it, I, I see that as quite a challenge to marry the two up. And as Charlie says, the the delta in the gold price is pretty small compared to the ultimate price of good jewellery. It's a nice thing for jewellers to offer if they feel that, you know, the gold is a really significant part of their jewellery cost um, and they want to be transparent, you know, as bets we would sell to jewellers you know, we change our pricing twice a day according to the gold fixes. So that's something that, you know, jewellers could do, but I think it would probably be administratively a bit of a pain for them and they wouldn't be changing their prices that much. And I wonder, as a customer, if you see something and then you go back and see it two days later and it's got more expensive, that's probably going to put a few people off. And your QR code, that has information on it. Do you think there'll be a time when you can actually kind of Travel to the mine via the QR code and have a look? Yeah. You can do that now? So virtually, of course, not. we can't teleport oh. you yet, Carol. <laughs> but I mean, you, you can. You look at the QR code and um, it, it takes you to that mine and there's a narrative, there's a story about this is what is happening at this mine in terms of community engagement, health projects, alternative livelihood projects, and, and to give you a real feeling about where this metal came from. But all written, you can't see it. No, no there's there's photographs as well. I mean, if you look at the QR yeah. code, it, it comes up. So ultimately, I guess you could have videos. I mean, you could, mm. um, yeah, you could take it into a virtual reality, couldn't you? I, I think ultimately we will develop that, you know, that immersive experience of the QR code. You know, it's an expensive thing to do to go and do a load of videography at a mine site, but it's something that we intend to continually improve and develop with SMO so that consumers can scrutinise the mine more and more as time goes on. I think that's really important, actually, because I think people have no idea. And I think that they're sort of fed a narrative, as you say, about big holes. And, you know, they have no idea that these are safe environments, thriving communities, and I think actually the more you show people, the, the more secure they feel about it. Well, yeah, I mean, the narrative is evil mining companies. It's as simple oh. as that. Well, but I mean, if, if I took you to Yam Falila in Mali, we've, we've set up, oh. I think, 13 market gardens where we have nearly a thousand local women now gainfully employed that will go on way beyond the life of the mine. You know, originally, we bought the produce. Now they have their own market. They're selling the, the produce of those market gardens 
And the mine established that. It trained them how to do it. It bought the initial seeds and it supported that endeavor. At the start, people were a bit, you know, what are you doing? And now they love it. Now, you know, this is fantastic. You know, they've got a livelihood. Do you have any females working in the mine? Yeah, we do. Absolutely. Wherever possible we can. It's um, it's a complicated question, as with everything. I feel I've said that to you a lot today. But I mean, <laughs> in Mali, for example, women are not allowed to work at night. So okay. it's quite difficult to have equal workforce on a 24-hour, 7, 24-7 plant when it is illegal for women to work at night, which I don't understand the reasons for that, I've got to say, but that's the law. Well, thank you very much, Dan, and thank you very much, Charlie, for, for joining us today. Thanks very much for your time, Carol. Pleasure. Thanks, Carol. Hopefully we've been able to give a little bit of colour about not just the complexity of the industry, but also the opportunity it offers for engagement with the consumer and the empowerment that consumers can have. And it makes sense that for so many years, people were asking where their diamonds came from, but never asked about what the diamonds were set in. No, it's crazy. You know, just encouraging consumers to engage with, you know, I think, as you said, they've been thinking about diamonds. And I think that's really cut through for some time. Um, but, but gold's exactly the same. I think people need to ask, ask the questions and you know, drive jewellers. A few people going through the doors of jewellers asking about the gold will drive an enormous amount of change. And I think that will be beneficial for the mining industry and for the jewellery industry ultimately. Thank you for listening. For this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwilton.com, subscribe to the podcast feed, share it any way you can, and we'd love a comment and a rating. For more information about our sponsors, please go to foolygemstones.com. And join us again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget, when I am delighted to be joined from Los Angeles by Asia Raden. She is the best-selling author of Stoned, um, a great book if you haven't read it, about jewellery obsession and how desire shapes the world, and her recent book, The Truth About Lies. And she is the star of the new Showtime film called Nothing Lasts Forever, which takes a look, a deep look inside the diamond industry. And she has lots to say and lots of controversial things to say, and she says it very well. So please join us. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Wilton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Wilton. <laughs>